Okay, Genesis House, why don't we stand, please? We're at chapter, uh, sorry, we're at 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Let's pray. Lord, we have, uh, as usual, we have uh, a minimal amount of verses, jam-packed full of knowledge and truth for us to adopt and learn. We pray, God, that you would uh, settle any questions in our mind about these verses and uh, maybe open us up to a new way of thinking that we had not seen before. And I pray for your guidance and wisdom as we walk through this as a church. And we're here to honor you with our lives and to please you. So uh, any words that are spoken today are for that purpose. So be with me in your spirit and person. Amen. Well, good morning, uh, Genesis House. I hope you brought your thinking caps today because we're in for a real doozer of a sermon, theologically. And it's not my fault, it's actually Peter's, because we're simply following chronologically through what he wrote in his letter. And because of the way we do church, I don't get to pick and choose the topics I do or don't want to cover. So before we jump in, I want to remind you what we covered last week, so that you're up to date. Because you'll notice that in verse 10, Peter begins with a therefore. So we have to understand what the therefore is there for. You remember that the whole message was really about our role in our Christian journey. Yes, we were to understand that we were saved by grace, but in response to His grace, we were to strive for seven virtues or characteristics that if diligently pursued would prevent us from being useless and unfruitful as Christians. The big word I took away from last week was the idea of being unemployed as a believer. You can be a Christian and be virtually unemployed and God's instruction to us, or Peter's exhortation is, don't be that, be employed as a believer. And he reminds us of why this is so important. He says, if you find yourself in this state, this unemployed state, it actually demonstrates something in our lives. And that is that we had become short-sighted or blind because we'd forgotten what Jesus did for us. We'd forgotten what sin had cost God. And so, therefore, we'd become spiritually blind and spiritually dull. And this, of course, is not a positive statement about our spiritual condition, but a negative one. And so, Peter, not desiring that any of us would live in such a state of spiritual blindness or apathy, motivates us to take further action. And so, he begins in verse 10 by saying, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. I think the first thing in order that we need to discuss here is what the words calling and choosing mean. Or some of your translations will have calling and election. Election. See, depending on who you talk to, you'll get various understandings of the meaning of these words. I want to discuss what it doesn't mean. To be called or chosen does not mean that before the world began, God chose some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. 
It also does not mean that once you're chosen and have the title as being elect, that as a Christian you're guaranteed that you're going to heaven. I know that many Christians believe this and teach this, but it's simply not true, as Peter is about to make clear. It is possible to be called and to be initially chosen and fall away from the relationship with God. And I'm going to show you two passages outside of Scripture, sorry, outside of this passage before we get into Peter's, that proves this. I want to first talk about the nature of the relationship of Israel to God. This is from Romans 11.25. He says this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full member of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, or being chosen, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call, calling, are irrevocable. So we have Israel, God's elect, God's chosen, and how are they defined here? Enemies of the gospel. That's very important, because the New Testament is going to use the Old Testament as a background for understanding these words. Consider Hebrews 3. In chapter 3, verse 1, I love this, the author says this, Therefore, brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Now listen to the warning in 12, 15, 12 to 15 of the same chapter. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourages one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. As just has been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. The, 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 the context of this is that he's speaking to Jewish people. But listen to like, these words here. You can turn away from the living God. And someone might say, well, that's not eternal in nature. That's just sinning once in a while. The problem is, he says, if you hold to your original conviction firmly to the end. So in other words, this is a life pattern. You have to, from the day you make your original stance, your original conviction to follow Jesus Christ, it's measured in how you end in your life. It's not a momentary thing, it's a, it's a habitual thing through life. And you have to end well. But most importantly, he says at the very end, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as, your, as you did in the rebellion. You meaning you Jews, you, your forefathers did. Because what did Israel do? They were chosen, they were elect, they were pulled into the wilderness out of slavery, and they rebelled against God, and God basically said, you can't enter the promised land. And he actually killed many of them in the desert. Many of them died before they even entered the before they even got to Canaan. And he says, don't be like your forefathers. It's important we understand these. So you can be called and chosen, and it, and it still uh, not be guaranteed of eternity. So what does it mean? Well, according to Peter, to be called and chosen is about God's effective drawing of a sinner to himself. 
And it's the means by which God brings us into relationship with himself. And we pick this up in verse 3. Because in verse 3, remember what he says. He says, seeing that his divine power has granted unto us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he's granted to us his precious magnificent promises that, so that we become partakers of the divine nature. So to be called and chosen then is this idea of that, uh, that, we are, that God's the initiator in reconciliation and he calls us and draws us and chooses us to be part of his team. Salvation is his idea and he's inviting us into this relationship. But whether we stay on the team or not and continue to play for him as good athletes make is up to us. This is why in verse 10 he says this, Be more, all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing for you. You have a role to play in this. And if I can give you an illustration to explain this. Um, any of you who are around my age, around like the 40-ish mark, or older, will, will, will know this is clear. Or anyone, any of you that are hockey buffs will know this. But in 1999, 1991, there was a guy named Eric Lindros. And he was considered to be the next great one. The next Gretzky. Big number 88. Uh, he played on Philadelphia Flyers and for Team Canada. Tremendous talent, tremendously uh, skilled player. He was drafted from the Oshawa Generals in 1991 as the number one draft pick by Quebec Nordiques. He was predicted to be number one and he was chosen by them because Quebec had first round pick. They, in this essence, called him and chose him to be part of the Quebec Nordiques. But do you know what he did in the draft? When he was called and his name went up, he would not put on their jersey or sign the papers to play for them. He says, I'd rather go back to Oshawa and play for the junior team once again. He was called by Quebec. He was chosen by Quebec. He stood up when the whole thing, like was, his name was called out, but he wouldn't put on their jersey or sign the papers. That's exactly how it is with the Lord. We can be called, we can be chosen, we can even be on the team for a while, but it was up to us on whether we end, stay on the team. A, a salvation is His initiation. We can't be saved without Him doing the initial work, but we ensure that salvation by the way we live in response to Him. And how does this look? Well, it's described to us in verse 5 to 9 from last week. We diligently practice the virtues and mentioned from 5 to 9. Because he says in verse 10, he says, Make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. What are the these things? That these things are reference to the, the, the moral excellence, the knowledge, the self-control, the perseverance, the godliness, the brotherly kindness, and love. Those are the things he's referring to. Now the Greek word here is practice. The Greek word for practice is to make, or to form, or construct. But it's used in other places in the New Testament when describing one's habits. What someone's known for. So this is not intermittent behavior. Like, uh, I do it here, but not for a while, or whatever. Like, you know, um, this kind of idea, like, I sin once, I'm done. It's not that kind of thing. It's about a pattern that defines one's life. To practice something means it's something that defines you. It's what you're known for. It's who you're known for. And when you live this way, it comes with a promise. He says, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. You will never stumble, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, will be abundantly supplied to you. That's the promise. Now, the, the, the definition of stumble 
means to fall and transgress. It's used in other places, in like places like James, to define sin. So stumbling is often referred to sin. Now there's debate amongst Christians about what Peter really means by the word stumble here. But really there's no need. The context makes it clear. Peter clearly means a falling away that is final in nature. It's final in nature. Because it's opposite in relationship to entering into the kingdom. It's a practice in life that prevents one from entering the kingdom. You pick that up again, he says, You will never stumble for, here's the substantiation, In this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom will be abundantly supplied to you. So ask the reverse question. What if you don't practice these things? What if you're not known for these things? Can I then say, for in this way, the entrance of the heaven will be abundantly supplied to you? Of course not. The opposite has to be true. For in this way, we, the, the entrance, entrance in the kingdom will not be abundantly supplied to you. That's the only logical conclusion. Now, some great men and women within Christianity don't believe this and have difficulty with the idea that Christians must work, work, you know, do these works in order to validate God's calling and election in their lives. Otherwise, they won't enter the glory. But it's undeniable from the passage that that's not true. Now, I'm going to show you two quotes, and I will tell you this. The only reason I know these quotes is because I listen to these men. So my intention by quoting them is not to slander them, mock them, and look like I'm superior to them. I learn from these men. I respect these men. They, I've learned a tremendous amount of biblical truth from these guys. So it's, it's, it's not a... I just believe that they're in error in this one place in Christianity. And again, I listen to them every week. That's how I know what they say. And I have their commentaries and so on. So don't see this as a one-upmanship type of thing. But look at, look at what these men say about these verses. Swindoll. Let's get something real clear. This is not a verse that is telling us that unless we give a supreme effort, we will not be saved. Some have rendered verse 10 like that. To make your calling election sure, you have to keep doing these things. No, it's because your calling election are firm that you add your amen to that by living like this. You simply express your gratitude by living like this. John MacArthur. Though God is certain who, who his elect are and has given them an eternally secure salvation, the Christian might not always have assurance of that. As a Christian pursues the qualities listed in Peter 5-7 to and sees that his life is useful and fruitful, he will not stumble into doubt, despair, fear, questioning, but enjoy assurance that he is saved. The word stumble here has nothing to do with doubt or despair or fear or questioning. The opposite of, in relation to stumbling is he will not enter the kingdom. But these men come from a Calvinistic background. They have a theological lens by which they look through Scripture. So all the verses have to be changed according to their theology. But when, you, when I showed you from the text, the way it logically plays out, you're left to conclude the opposite, if you're honest. And this is important because virtually, I mean, actually, I could be wrong, but from what I've heard, every single teacher on 11.40 a.m. radio is Calvinist. Everyone, you'll never hear this verse taught in 1140 any other way. I've never heard it. I listened to all of them. I could name them. I'm not going to. I've listened to them for years, off and on. They're phenomenal teachers. They know biblical truth like crazy. In this one area, they've got it wrong. I can't find, I, I can already tell the bent of the radio station. I can't find a single teacher to preach like this in the entire station. Again, I'm not disrespecting them. I, I've learned a tremendous amount from them. I've, learned, I've grown through them. 
I have their commentaries, but in this one area, it's just not right. So I want to clarify a couple of questions that you might have arising in your head. Because some of you might be thinking, well, Andrew, it sounds like you're preaching a salvation that's based on works. I thought you were saved by grace. This is not a working to earn salvation. Remember the first sermon. This is a, righteous, a, a, a salvation based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, verse 1, which you receive by faith. So God's the initiator of salvation. You can't save yourself. You can't do any works to earn your salvation. However, these are, this is, these are works to ensure your salvation. <laughs> okay? So it's not a working to earn salvation. It's a working to ensure salvation. It's a love expression back to God for what He's done for you. And in that way, Chuck Swindoll's right. He says, because you're, uh, he says, um, you have to keep these, doing these things because your calling election are firm that you add your amen to living like this. So he's right in that way. This is a love expression back. We're not trying to earn God's favor. He's already given that through Jesus. But it's a love expression back to him for his love for us. This is clear in other places like James. And I want you to turn with me to James. Listen to the kind of works that James is looking for. It's near the end of the Bible. Turn back, backwards from Peter. <laughs> We're going to turn to James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. James 2.14 What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? The answer to that is no. That's the answer. Um, verse 17 Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Yeah, that's a true statement, because if faith has works, if faith doesn't have works, are you saying that it's alive? According to this, no. How about verse 20? But you are willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Again, this is a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question. And verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, after he gives some examples. Again, what kind of works is he talking about? These aren't reference to works of the law, but works of faith in love response to Jesus. The virtues described in 5 to 9, the moral excellence, the self-control, the love of the brethren, etc. Another question that might come to mind then, are you saying that if, I'm, if I sin once, I'm out, or twice, I'm out? <laughs> is that what you're saying? No, not at all. Remember, the key word is practice. It's what you're known for. Israel, God didn't get rid of uh, Israel because he sinned once. He said, these ten times you've spurned me. Ten times. But they became known for this. A good example, I used it last week, and it wasn't, to, it, wasn't, it, came out, it wasn't to make fun of anybody, but we all know in the church, if you phone somebody, who's going to pick up and who's not? Or if you text someone, who's likely to get back to you and who's not? Who are the good texters and phone call returners in our church versus who aren't? It's not a sin issue, but we said, we, why did we, but we know, we were known for that. It wasn't one time you phoned them and didn't pick up, or two times you didn't phone them. It's, I've been in a relationship with them for five years, and most of the time I can't get a hold of them, or vice versa, right? You didn't uncover that in a one moment situation. You covered that in a period of relationship where you discovered that about a person. It's the same thing with our lives with the Lord. 
This is not a once and done type of thing. God's way too gracious for that. This is something that we're known for, that we've, we've, we're in rebellion against God on a constant basis for. Again, so someone might say, well, how much sin can I do and get away with it? That's the wrong question. Imagine, um, Darcy, I walked up to you and said, you're friends, right? And you said, oh, absolutely. I said, well, how much can I gossip about you behind your back before a friendship is over? You'd be like, what kind of question is that? Why would you even be asking that? Like, I hope you just say none. I'm like, yeah, good point. I should be thinking like that way. Again, like, this is not a black and white thing with the Lord. Where, I mean, if you're asking how much sin you can get away with and to give of God, boy, you don't understand the relationship with God. Just like I don't understand the relationship with, with you if I'm your friend. Okay, so I think, um, let's turn back to, to Second Peter here. Hopefully I've clarified those, those questions for you. But if not, we can have a time and dialogue. Okay, so a bit, little bit heavy sermon so far. A little bit hard to maybe hear. Difficult to wade through. But listen, church, this is not... Tell, I'm not Peter's not preaching these words and telling us these words to scare you. Or me. He's simply trying to encourage these people to remain faithful. Remember what's going on in the church. They have false teachers coming into their church saying what? You can belong to Christ and live however you want. You're saved by grace, so you can just live a life of immorality, lack self-control, lack perseverance, lack love. You can do all these things. It doesn't matter. So Peter's trying to, he's saying, no church, remember, remember, like, you can't do this. Like, I want to try to give you a warning that what these false teachers could possibly do to you. So he's trying to encourage them to stay true to the Lord and to remember to practice these things as a way of maintaining their security. He wants them to be saved. He wants them to live a life of Godliness. He doesn't want them to be separated from God. So he's, he's crying out to them, please adhere to my words here. And why would he care so much? Because there's an incredible promise to you and me if we persevere. Do you see the beautiful promise to us? Look at, look at verse 11. He says, it would help if I'm in the right book. He says this, um, For in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus will be abundantly supplied to you. This is a wonderful motivating promise. This is not to scare anybody. And here's why. Because heaven's an incredible place. So let me end the sermon by just reminding you of the beauty of heaven and what awaits you when you diligently pursue and make your election sure by the way you love God and your, and your works of faith. Let me give you a description of the city that awaits you. When we were in Jerusalem, Laurel and I, we saw some beautiful things, but there was also some tragic things. Walking through the temple and seeing like grave sites with graffiti on them, but with the Muslim quarter and things like that, it was just, you know, even the own Jewish people, like, you know, some of the, the people like buying and selling and just trying to turn a profit and not caring about us as tourists and so on. There was beautiful things, but it was also very sad in many ways. So the city that's described here is nothing like we saw when we were in Israel. Now listen to this description. Um, the, the walls will be 70 meters thick to the city. They'll have 12 foundations and three gates. Three gates in the north, south, east, and west. The walls and foundations are made of beautiful stones. They're jasper, sapphire, emerald, pearl, topaz. We have concrete and wood and some hardy board if you're lucky. Jasper, sapphire, emerald, pearl, topaz. You know how much your little topaz 
stone costing your ring. Imagine 70 meters thick, 1,500 miles wide, tall, and in length. It's a cube of that kind of material. God's prepared that for you. Why? Because he wants to like slam you into the ground? Because he loves you. <laughs> He's crazy about you. He wants you to experience his best. The city itself is constructed from pure gold. So those are just the walls I'm describing. The city itself is pure gold. How about the environment? The curse and creation that we experience is completely reversed. It's a restoration back to the Garden of Eden, but better. Revelation tells us that, it, that, that the Garden of Eden is basically restored. The river of the water of life flows freely through the city. The tree of life will be available to all humanity once again, yielding fruit monthly for us to eat. There will be no sun or no moon because the light source of heaven will be the glory of God. You know what's really important in the Genesis account? On day four, the sun and moon were created, not in day one. Yet the world, he said, let there be light and there was light. Where'd the light source come from? How can light exist without the sun and moon? Because of God. He's the source of light. The sun and moon were given later for other reasons. It's back to creation day one. The curse of humanity will be completely removed. It'll be the place of no mores, no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, all emotional and physical pain, gone. Why? Because Jesus defeated the power of death and took its sting away. We will be all immortal. And Peter describes it this way, 1 Peter 1. And it will be an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and never fade away. So it will never be subject to decay, never be polluted or stained with sin, and never fail to exist. Sound like a place you want to go? Want to be? But here's the most important thing. It'll be the, where Jesus Christ will be and where God will dwell among us. Heaven is about the Lord. That is about the Lord. Yes, it'll be nice to see the loved ones experience freedom from pain from this world. But I love what Joe Dongel says. He says, heaven, he says this, the central hope of heaven will not be real estate, but relationship. Isn't that good? The central hope of heaven will not be real estate. It'll be relationship. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. No reference to the walls, the gold, the river of life. Heaven is summarized, with, heaven is summarized in one word. Being with the Lord. Revelation 21, 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. I want to ask you guys a question and sort of get real with you right now. Some of you, I mean, I've been through this, so I can understand, but I want to see if you can relate to me at all what I've been through in my past. Some of you might be struggling with the idea that heaven is, should be all about Jesus. Meaning that, why aren't I excited when I read those verses about the fact that I'm going to be with the Lord? Yeah, like, I'm actually more excited that I'm going to escape pain and escape troubles and escape this world because of what it brings in me. And so I know, I know intellectually that I should be excited about seeing Jesus and heaven's about Jesus, but I'm not actually believing that deep down in my heart. How can you help me get excited about being with the Lord? 
If experiencing that feeling right now, I, I've walked through that feeling. Feeling guilty about what I should be thinking, or know I should be thinking, but not actually believing it deep down in the core. Here's a revealing question, especially for those of you who are parents, or about to be parents, or want to be parents one day. Do you believe that God loves you more than you love your own children? Not intellectually, what's the right answer? Do you actually believe it deep down inside that God loves you more than you love your own children? So think of your love for your kids and the kids you're going to have. Do you believe in one iota that God loves you more than that? Not what you think you should know, but do you actually believe it in the core of who you are? Because you're, that's the right answer. But he wants you, to, any, if you don't believe that, it's because Satan's got you deceived. But he loves you more than you love your own kids. And I want to show you the deep, deepness of the Father's love for you. I could go on about the cross. I could go on about the cross. But I'm going to go to a different place today. Turn with me to Luke 15. We're going to end with these. Jesus gives three parables in a row. And the purpose of the parables is really to show the joy that God has when a person repents and enters into relationship with Him. Right? This is, these parables are going to express the joy and the love that God has for a person when they repent. And they come to know Him as their Savior. And now the first one is the parable of the lost coin, where a woman goes looking for a lost coin, which symbolizes repentance, and all of heaven and the angels rejoice. I'll read it to you, actually, in verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, in relationship to finding of one coin. Oh, I should actually back up. I missed one. The parable of the lost sheep. You know, the one the shepherd loses, has a hundred sheep. One goes missing. And look at the joy in heaven when they find him. I tell you that, in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. So as a hundred, yeah, the repentance over one lost, and the, the joy in heaven in verse 7. Again in verse 10, the joy over one being found in verse 10. But here's the key one, the parable of the lost son. And you know the story, you know the parable. A father has two sons, an older and a younger. The younger rebels against the father, squanders his inheritance, lives a life of complete selfishness and immorality. And after hitting rock bottom, makes his way with his tail between his legs back home, hoping his father will take him back. And the key is the father's response when this boy shows up that did nothing but hurt him and, and destroy that relationship. Look at the father's response in verse 20. Uh, we're going to start halfway down. He says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The boy hadn't even spoken yet, but when he saw him, he went after him, just in complete compassion that he was returning home. Look at verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine is dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. And look at verse 32. The, young, the older brother is mad at his father for, the, for what happened. And look at the father's response to the older brother. 
But we had to celebrate and rejoice, son, for this brother of yours was dead and, be and, not, and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And of course, this is a picture of the Lord. This is the picture of God. And Jesus is teaching these people this illustration to say, this is the love that the Father has for you. And here's the thing, this is happening on earth. This is God's joy and his pursuance and his love for us and his compassion while we live here. So why in the world when we actually get to heaven would he be, uh, his expression be any different? You're not going to walk into heaven and he's going to be sitting on his throne like this. Come here. Right? Of course not. He's going to run to the gates and say, welcome here and embrace you. Put your arms around you and say, welcome home. This is the Father that pursues reconciliation, that wants to be with you, who loves you. You see why now Peter says what he does? He's not trying to scare you and I away from him by saying it's a works. Don't be like, you know, like, like I want you to obey God because he's a, like a big, got a big hammer. If you don't, he's going to uh, push you out of the kingdom. It's not like that. It's not a list of do's and don'ts, a list to strike off. This is a way of expressing your love for God because of his love for you. And it's Peter's encouragement to you and I is to move forward in a relationship with him and honor him with our lives. These works of faith are an expression back to his initial salvation. And that's what it is to work out your calling and choosing of you with the Lord. I'll give you three lessons for today. To be called and chosen by God does not mean that one is predestined or guaranteed the promise of eternal life. The text doesn't say that. Romans 11 doesn't tell you that. Hebrews doesn't tell you that. I could give you at least 20 passages off the top of my head that doesn't say that. I chose two. You're not eternally secure until you're securely in eternity. Okay? Number two, to be guaranteed eternal life, a believer must validate their calling by practicing works of faith. He says, be all the more diligent, right? And by practicing these things, you will never stumble. The works of faith are described in verse 5 to 9 in this context, anyway. Okay? You secure your own eternity. These are not works to earn salvation. God starts by doing that in your life. It's His work. You can't do anything to save yourself. But these are works to ensure your salvation by living in response to Him, but with the way you honor Him by your life. James also makes that clear. Faith without works is dead. He's not talking about works of the law. He's not talking about beginning, doing works to get saved. He's talking about after you've been saved. This is a love expression to Jesus Christ. Finally, Peter encouraged us to strive for spiritual maturity because of the incredible reward heaven promises to be. We have a Father that has prepared a kingdom and a city that we cannot even fathom. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. Your eyes and your heart and your mind can't even fathom the things that God's prepared for you. Um, I think it's 1 Corinthians 2.9 if my memory serves me right. It's not a Father that looking to smite you and is trying to make you feel like it's a, like that you're falling short in your life. He's encouraging you to do these works because he loves you and he wants you to experience his incredible reward. City made of gold, uh, uh, like uh, the tree, like the garden of Eden restored, walls made of incredible stones, 
place of the no more, is no more tear, no, no more pain, no more sorrow. And a place where most importantly you get to be with Jesus Christ, a Father who loves you so much, He will run to you to embrace you when you enter the kingdom.